0: So it's just post Christmas. Uh the season is finally over. I say that like I didn't like it, but I did. It was pretty good. Uh we had a we had a lovely Christmas, lots of family, lots of expensive presents, lots of wrapping paper. Um I, I realized that actually as much as I like the as much as I like the build up to Christmas, which I find kind of fun, like a lot of what Christmas seems to me now is more something that exists in my brain rather than what exists in real life. What exists in real life is, uh, putting together train sets and getting upset about it or wrapping gifts before we go to bed on Christmas Eve, because we didn't do it up to this point, stuff like that. It's, it is not the traditional, um, eggnog and mistletoe and, family gathering around the hearth. It's really, I love that concept. It doesn't end up being what really happens. (laughs) Let's just say that. I like the season. I like it that it's over too. Uh, I guess that change is okay to me, but I wanted to let everyone know that I got a lot of really nice response to the last episode where I started, I talked a little bit about stoicism and I talked a little bit about being in treatment. And I realized as I was recording that, I'm like, man, I've been going for a while and I'm not even, I mean, scratch the surface of this bad boy. And so I kind of threw it out to you guys like, hey, do you want to hear more about this? And um, I got a lot of feedback saying that that the story was interesting and and they were into it. So I'm going to just pick it up where we left off. But so to start with, I want to talk a little bit about stoicism again, because what I'm finding is that it applies in a lot of places in my life and I don't apply it myself as well as I would like to, but it does apply a lot. For instance... So Stoicism talks a lot about emotions. I think when people think of Stoics, they think of people with no emotion. They think of, you know, the Vulcan characters from Star Trek movies and stuff like that and Star Trek shows because they have no emotions. And that's not really what Stoicism is. But Stoicism is is understanding that emotions are transitional and that they don't last and that you don't have to act out on your first response. Uh, you don't have to act out on your first feeling. You know, And the other thing is... Emotions are a fancy way of saying feelings, really. <laughs> and when I when I got into treatment, all they talked about was feelings. Oh my gosh, and, and I wanted nothing to do with it. it was, I thought it was ridiculous they were talking about this stuff because I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to stop using drugs. Who cares about feelings, right? And it just goes to show that I didn't realize I had no idea what I was getting into at all when I started treatment. Um and <laughs> like I knew More about like if I had to have cancer treatment, I think, than I knew about having treatment for basically mental illness of addiction. So uh, I was was essentially a blank slate because I was so clueless. And there's a lot to dig into there. So let's go ahead and get going. Alan Mead is a dentist with too much time on his hands and too much recording equipment in his basement. Armed with an obsession to bring entertaining and informative content to the dental world in a way that's never been done before, I give you the Alan Mead Experience. All right, so before I get going, I want to thank the people who bring this show to you. That is Premier Dental Products, inspired solutions for daily dentistry. I had a great Premier story uh, last Friday, so that was the Friday before Christmas, I went in and I saw an emergency patient. Classic thing—a dude I should have worked in on Thursday to open his tooth up, and and I I put him on some I put him on a steroid actually, I'd put him on a Medrol dose pack, thinking, yeah, this will fix it, and it didn't. Nice guy, really sweet guy. He wanted to do the right thing, and I put him off. I, I did I did the thing that was easier rather than working him into my schedule because I didn't want to I didn't want to hear about it from my team being upset that I worked him in. So I ended up going in on a Friday. And I opened his tooth. Everything went well, but I needed I needed to build this tooth up pretty bad. And if you've ever worked without an assistant, when you're used to working with an assistant, uh, bonding stuff is is not easy. You know, isolating all that stuff. I, it was it was cool, but what I realized is I have several, I have a ton of instruments in my setup right now. My setups are completely they're They are the accumulated flotsam of basically years of trying and and. Essentially losing or trying and, and dumping instruments. Um, I've come across a set of instruments that I won't do without anymore. They're called the Slicks instruments. They're from Premier Dental. They're composite instruments. They come in all the shapes that you want, uh, the skinny and proximal carvers. But actually, I don't need a. I don't. I basically need an acorn shape and like a little teeny tiny blunt finger shape. I don't need very much shape wise. I'm trying really hard to simplify my my uh, setups because they're crazy. I have way too many instruments in them, and this is this is all my doing, by the way. If I had any if I had any leadership skills, I'd I'd figure this out myself, and that's what I'm hoping to do. That was one of my one of my New Year's resolutions, right? But I came to realize that I really like these Slicks instruments. For one thing, the handles are nice and fat, but they're soft and, and grippy, but they're rubberized. They're not gross or anything like that. They feel great. Uh, they're bright purple, so you can't miss them amongst other instruments. Uh, and they, I love the, I love the non-stick surface. They're great. They're really good instruments. You should check them out. Uh, they're called Slicks, S L I X. I've talked about them before, but I basically want like five instruments in my, in my, my normal pack, and I think I can probably do that. Uh, I'm going to pick a couple Slicks composite instruments, uh, Mirror and Explorer, and probably a Perio Probe. So I'm thinking that's what I need because. I was trying to do this myself and it did not help that I had a freaking million instruments out. It was, it was, it got done, but it wasn't pretty. I'm just gonna say that right now. So go check out the slicks composite instruments from premier dental inspired solutions for daily dentistry. So stoicism talks a lot about emotions. Interestingly, and it's not that we don't have emotion. It's that we're not controlled by emotion or, you know, or, or, the goal is to not be controlled by emotion. So when I got into treatment, I, I will tell you, I think I, I ended kind of as I cruised into Grand Rapids into this treatment center. I'd finished detox, and I had moved into an apartment with uh, three other recovering addicts that had been a little further along with, with the program. That's what it was. As, as people would finish the program, uh, it was it was essentially – it was it was, it was, in, it was It was not an – uh, it was not in a hospital, like we lived in apartments, like I said, so it was considered an intensive outpatient if you've ever if you have any familiarity so it 's technically outpatient, except that they owned they owned the uh apartments we lived in, so it was a little bit more controlled than that, and we were supposed to get most of our recovery from the actual community that we lived in, and this was really interesting because they wanted us to live amongst our peers. They wanted us, we had a lot of requirements. We were required, like I said, to go to one 12-step meeting a day. And you were kind of expected to do stuff with other people in in the community. Now, there were plenty of people in the community that lived in Grand Rapids. And so, like, their families and their house and stuff were, you know, within driving distance. I was two and a half hours away from home. So, it's not like I was taken off to, and you were not allowed to go home. You were not allowed to go and see your family. Every interaction outside of the treatment center was controlled. That sounds way worse, maybe, than it is. Like, but part of it is that they wanted to make sure that you didn't come into a treatment center on a roll. Like, the story is, people didn't come in because they'd make excellent choices. You know, people like me, I was a mess. And my, you know, basically I had one speed. I had two speeds. I was either using or getting more to use because I didn't have any. That was it when I was out. So they know this. They understood this. They would set up, like I talked about before, they set up the buddy system where you were you were at least for the first week and and maybe longer depending on the person, you were required to be around someone from the community at all times, someone else in the treatment center. It was interesting because a lot of the treatment happened with your interaction with other people that were, in treatment at the time, which is kind of funny because they can't control what kind of freak show people that were in there. Like one of my roommates was a surgeon. He was a physician. And, um, if you met him, you wouldn't have believed he could have made it through medical school, much less high school. Like this guy, this guy was a mess and he was, he would not only was he a mess, but he would consistently make poor, poor, poor decisions. This is a guy who at one point, he was uh given a chance to go back home on a pass let me i'll dig into this in a second, but basically you had to get permission to do everything you could have um different kinds of passes so you could have um church and a meal pass you could get any anytime these this was basically for people who had um had relatives close by so you could basically you could get a pass for that if the if the community awarded you the pass you could go to church and then have dinner afterwards with your family on sunday so that was one pass they did interestingly they did want you to go to one uh service they wanted you to go to church once a week which is really funny because this is where people who are are um very anti-religion would get hung up about it you know like they're forcing religion on you and and i mean in some ways I would just, I would go with whoever was local and knew, you know, I went to a lot of times you'd go to like a Saturday evening service and then there was a meeting afterwards. So you could kind of knock out both things at once. And it was a social thing after that. We'd a lot of times go out for dinner or something like that. Um, so it was not a big deal. Part of it is that a lot of people bristle at the idea of being told they need to go to church. And what I, what I came to realize is that as soon as you started to bristle at someone telling you what to do, you needed to lean into that. You need to decide, not only am I going to do what they're telling me I need to do, I'm going to do it kind of with a smile on my face. I'm going to do it well. I'm not going to, because I hadn't been making good decisions for myself at all. Um, I left to my own devices. I was I was pretty much, I had a track record of making terrible decisions. That's not, you know, overall life decisions or anything like that. It's just like when I was using, when I was in active addiction, I, was, I, I couldn't be counted on to to make a good, healthy decision for myself. So when I said, okay, I'm going to go to this treatment center and I'm going to do what they tell me to do, as soon as you would bristle at something like that, you'd you'd come to realize, okay, this is just one more thing. I'm going to do what they tell me to do because I'm going to do it right. You know, If I got to be here, I might as well do it. Now, I wasn't forced to be there. Although, interestingly, when I came into the treatment center, the The guy who ran the treatment center his name was dr tom haynes he was a he was actually a recovering person himself he was a big he's he was a three hundred pounder or more probably six five big fat dude um and he was he was the guy he could look at you across the room and you would wilt you know he had one of these really mean nasty and he was he was running this treatment center he was doing really well for himself um it turns out he you know he's a recovering person so he had a bunch of his own trials and tribulations himself but the treatment center at the time I was there was really top notch. It was the best place. But he handed me the phone the day I sat down and met him. Where I was, I was like still probably high at that point. You know, like I'd just gotten out of detox. I was a mess. They're telling me his his salespeople were telling my my parents it would be six six weeks max. No one got out of there in six weeks. Shoot, it was six weeks before they had a diagnosis for crying out. It was ridiculous. Everyone was there for at least four months. I was there for four and a half months. I was probably there for the shortest time anyone I knew there. So, I mean, it was a long process. This was the way this worked. I kind of described it last, last episode. Oh, yeah, by the way, if if this is the first episode of the Alameda Experience you're listening to, do yourself a favor. Go listen to some other ones. And actually, even if, if you didn't hear the one part one of this version, go back and listen to part one because it's not going to make any sense. I literally picked up where I left off. Um, So I knew I, I ended up being there for a while. But he also had me call what's in Michigan called the Health Professionals Recovery Program. And I did not know that I was turning myself in. He did not tell me that's what I was doing. I just did what he did because he was scary and he handed me the phone and I, and so basically I signed myself up to be on contract for, (laughs) for, you know, three, four years, three years. It ended up being for me. I didn't know that. Basically I turned myself in and then they let him do the treatment and then we set the contract up after I left. So the bottom line is like, I, I'm i sure that what he did was super illegal, like you can't make someone turn themselves in like that, especially since I, I didn't, the one thing I did not have is any criminal charges against me, it's not like I couldn't have had multiple times, but I didn't have anything, I had no legal problems coming into this deal, but he basically, <laughs> he turned me in, He he didn't turn me in, he handed me the phone and had me turn me in, I didn't know I was turning myself in. Uh, there's a part of me that wants to be resentful about that, but just looking back for how, how things turned out and how well everything went, I have no complaints, but a lot of this stuff is like, you kind of have to trust that not only do they have, you know, your best interest in mind that they're gonna, they're gonna do the right thing. So I turned myself in the same day that I pretty much accepted to be in treatment and all that stuff. And I just literally gotten out of detox. So I landed this apartment. I'll go, the community runs in a way that I've, I'm sort of all over the place. Sorry about this. So you can, you'd get this, you could get passes. If you've been there after, I think after four weeks, you could get a pass. Like, and, and your passes would be, you could get a weekend pass. You get two different kinds of passes per month. So once a month, you could get like a weekend pass where you went home for the whole weekend to spend time with your family and all this stuff. And you could get a day pass where you you'd get one overnight. So you'd like leave on a Friday and you'd have to come back Saturday afternoon or something like that. Uh, And again, these passes depend on where you lived. Most of the people that were in this treatment center were within a few hours. You know, Metro Detroit was well represented. Grand Rapids was well represented. Um, But, I mean, if you were were hours and hours away, this wouldn't work as well. But most of them weren't. So you could get a a day pass or you could get a weekend pass every other weekend if everything was going well. Now, if you screwed up while you were in treatment, which is to say – you, there's so many ways you could screw up. Oh, my gosh, it's crazy. Basically, I mean, there's, there's just rules everywhere, everywhere. Um, I was a guy who had been known to write fraudulent scripts for people and pick them up myself. That was one of my moves, one of my many moves. Um, I was not allowed to go into a store of any sort, particularly not a pharmacy uh, of any sort alone. I was basically the entire time that I was in treatment, I was not allowed. That was one of the rules that was on me. I, uh, I got in trouble actually probation P there was little P and big P. Uh little P was, was, um, smaller things. Big P was relapsing. Big P was, you know, being gone without, you know, telling anyone big P was the big stuff. I actually got me the guy who follows all the rules. I got in trouble because I got caught by my wife, my first break home using nose spray. If anyone's ever used that Sinex nose spray, um, I was a garbage head I was addicted to everything, and that was one of the things that I did. I used to if you've ever used that stuff, it does clear your nose really nicely, but if you use it more than like two or three times, you get this horrible rebound effect where your your nose swells up and you can't breathe through it. honestly, they must sell a lot of this stuff because it's always on the shelves it's a it's a horrible habit to get into um and I had i mean just like everything else, I had no control, so I use this stuff constantly, but you're not allowed to use that in treatment. I mean, technically it's not addictive. It's not like you're gonna mainline the stuff or go out on a three day bender from it. But I wasn't allowed to and I and my wife walked in when I was I my folks had some and I used it at their house and oh my gosh, it was ugly. It was really ugly. So I I was put on probation for, for using nose spray. I mean if you wanted to have like street cred in treatment, nose spray is like literally the, the wussiest thing you could do. You know, it's not it's not like I was out getting hookers and blow here. We're talking nose spray but that was where I got in trouble. But there were all these rules you had to follow and you had to have a meeting a day and you had to show up at your appointments and you you weren't really supposed to go off alone very much. And if you were alone, you were supposed to tell everyone where you were towards the end of my treatment. Like I would, I would find myself going driving over to East Grand Rapids to a Starbucks kind of early in the morning and getting a cup of coffee and reading and stuff because I kind of wanted a little bit of time away from the community and I think that it's really funny. What happened was this was sort of a cool place I found, and then a, some of my roommates decided they liked it too. So so this became this ritual that I that I started to try and get away and be by myself for a little while became a group thing, just like everything in treatment did. Like we all joined the same gym. We all <laughs> – it was just like this this block of sick people trying to get better doing stuff together all the time. I have no regrets on that end. It was just like – but it was – it was such a, it was such a change from what life was like before that, where I was in running, you know, quote unquote, running my own practice. Anyhow, but coming back to the fact that that like I didn't understand anything about feelings and emotions and all this stuff. I didn't realize that addiction had anything to do with that. I just felt like, look, you know, I uh, I like to use drugs, and I'm I'm here to stop. Here's the thing, but, and I remember very vividly. Like, look, I don't have any, you know, childhood trauma issues I have to get through. I don't have any issues. I just like to do dope. You know, I just, I just don't handle stress very well. And in some ways that's kind of true. Like I grew up in a very idyllic family. We still, you know, my family's still all close. We do that kind of stuff. I didn't have, I think dental school probably wrecked me and it's not because dental school was any worse for me than it was for anyone else. I just, I just never had the I never had the coping skills to to not get sort of damaged by the experience at dental school. So I'm pretty sure that's where it came, but I you know, going into practicing dentistry without really knowing what I was doing and, you know, I just didn't handle stress well. But the other thing is to some extent there are some people who are just, you know, once they start using they're going to keep using because they really like getting high. I'm convinced I was one of those people. Um so when I dug in on therapy, there wasn't that much to dig into, you know, like I didn't I didn't have, you know, I didn't start using when I was 14. I didn't start it was I didn't have a lot of that stuff, but the one thing that we all had in common whether you did it, we didn't handle our emotions well. Like and I still I still struggle with that sometimes, but like when things happened to me, I had one reaction, you know, good bad or otherwise, I was going to use. After a while, once you get past the, you know, the original, you know, fascination with with drugs and alcohol, it just becomes your 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 default. That's where you go and that was my problem but once you're using you no longer recognize emotions in fact i'm not sure i ever recognized emotions like like part of emotion understanding emotions is stepping back far enough to understand that something that that you're feeling angry about something rather than just staying in it and being angry you're like wow i'm actually this is an emotion that's coming from my body due to this and i can let this go I can, I don't have to react in this way. That is, that is foreign to me and to a lot of people. And that's okay. I mean, it's, it's something that we learned about, but when I was first in treatment, people, all they talked about is what are you going to do with emotions? What are you going to do? With... And I, I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't, pro- I don't have, I don't have a problem with feelings. I don't have all this stuff. This is crazy. I just want to stop using when I didn't realize that pretty much my entire life is wrapped up in how I handle feelings, you know? And Like, that's such a soft science kind of thing, considering, you know, we went to dental school and it was all hard sciences and all, you know, all judgment and all, like, being judged harshly and, you know, this is good and this is bad and moral choices and all this stuff. (laughs) Like, like just being able to take a look at your feelings and going, okay, yep, I am feeling this way. I'm going to just feel this way for a little while and then I'm going to let it go because it's not helping to feel this way any longer. That's such a soft science, but it's, it literally is the difference between living well and not living well. I'm, I'm convinced of it. So once I realized that, that treatment was going to help me this way, and I don't know that I actually like woke up one morning and said, Hey, I'm going to be able to understand why my feelings are this way. Or I'm going to be able to, it wasn't like that. It's just, you got practice at doing it around in a safe place. You got practice at, at digging into feelings and understanding why you'd feel one way or the other and how to handle it. You got some practice being around other people that were doing it. Probably the best experience ever. This is so funny. Dentists are famous for this. We can always see when someone else is having a hard time with their team member. You know, like if they've got someone, it's, it's the classic thing. You know, we all talk about oh, to fire she needs to be fired you know she needs to be fired and i can't believe you didn't fire earlier fire fire quickly and and uh, hire slowly which is probably good stuff however that is everyone has to admit that it's easy to say that it's a lot harder to do that (laughs) in other words there wouldn't be the need for all the all the coaches and gurus out there if if managing people were really as easy as just understanding when to hire and fire you know you have personal relationships with these people whether you like it or not and and even though they might not be good team players, you, you do have a relationship with them that's kind of uncomfortable. Some people are probably much easier and, and and more detached from it than others. I'm someone who's who has a hard time detaching from that, so I might need more help than others. But it always sounds easy, and it's always easy for me to point at your practice with that kind of a problem. But me looking at my own situation is always harder. And anyone who thinks it's otherwise is fooling themselves because we are all a giant bag of Feelings and meat, basically, you know, it's, it's, that's all we are kind of constantly, you know, we're, we're taking in the world and reacting to how we're feeling. It's, it's crazy, but true in any case, what treatment was, was about a four and a half month, you know, chance to experience feelings in a safe place and talk about them and, and learn to let them go and learn to recognize them in other people. So you can sort of start to realize that you can recognize them in yourself, uh, which I cannot say, I I, honestly, it's really funny these 12 step groups. And frankly, just living in a community like this is an opportunity that I had early on. I was 30 years old when I did this. So this is a long time ago. Um, so I got to learn this stuff pretty early on and I got to learn this stuff in a concentrated situation where I wasn't trying to run the practice. I wasn't trying. I mean, I literally was, was detached from dentistry completely. It was the first time in forever that I hadn't gone to Chicago midwinter because I was in treatment in January through May of 2002 so i missed and and i was kind of i was not in contact with a lot of my friends i just i didn't tell many people what was going on and here's what happened to my practice everyone's wondering what do you do with your practice well here's the thing my dad uh who has his own practice had his own practice uh, a big practice in midland michigan where i live uh went in two days a week and would work my practice like a dog for two days a week and he would run my run my team ragged and and run them hard and make sure that the practice was still going. It may not have been pretty, but it was it was up and running. And um he I mean he, he basically saved my practice. The practice would not have been there. You can't you can't not work in a practice for four months, four and a half months. You know, you gotta have someone there. Like I said, we we may not have been it may not have been running like a, a fine tuned machine, but he was right in there getting the job done. So it so there was something there for me to come back to. And I remember very vividly the fact was I don't know if they if they said it explicitly while I was in treatment, but you are basically not a doctor when you're in treatment, you're not a dentist, you're not who you you are a recovering person, and job number one is to work on your recovery and let the world go by. Which is very unrealistic for a lot of people. But (laughs) as my dad would tell you, I took to it quite nicely. I uh I sort of took this little safe place and I, I did. I sort of worked on myself and and I will tell you my team was not particularly happy with me for the fact that I didn't let them know anything what was going on. Dad didn't really know what was going on with me. There was there was a part of them and a part of my dad that wasn't sure I was gonna be coming back as a dentist like ever because I never mentioned like, oh, I'm really ready to get back to practicing and you know? all I never I never told them anything. It was like it was it was a break, but I'd only been out for four years. You know, I hadn't it's not like I've been working for twenty five years, and I'd only been out for four years, but it was this break that I took and learned learned how to handle, you know, my feelings and emotions and learned how to stop using dope and learn how to live a, a different way and all this stuff. I almost wish everyone could do this by choice, you know. Uh, but I have to say, on the other hand, no one would choose to lose this much control over their life. It was it was like a step away from being in jail, with as far as just being ordered around and being told what to do, and you just saying yes, sir, I'll do it, kind of thing. Um, but it was it was maybe in a healthier. And there were times in treatment where it was fun because we learned how to like, you know, interact with other people without there being drugs and alcohol on the scene. And so we would, you know, we had a group of guys that hung out and went to meetings together, and 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 we'd laugh together we we i mean there were friday nights we'd go to this restaurant in grand rapids called brand's brand steakhouse it's still there it's it's not a fancy place it was it was sort of like your family dining place and we would go after a meeting we would go over and have sirloin sizzlers i remember that it was one of the less expensive things on the menu because uh i had a pretty tight allowance <laughs> at this point like i had not my uh, my financial decision-making had been no better than any other decision-making I'd made when I came in here. So I, I had a lot. Of, I was in the hole pretty good. So I didn't have a lot of money to spend. I will say when my parents would come and visit, um, I'll talk, tell you about that in a sec, but when they would come down, they would slip me money. My wife was slipping me no money. She was pretty unhappy with me on all this thing. So, um, But we would go out on Friday nights. And I do remember my wife specifically saying, this is great. You get to go out with all your new friends and enjoy yourself. And I'm stuck home You know, with basically the the leftovers of what you screwed up. Thanks a lot. You know, it was it was tough. It was tough on everyone. It was the right thing for me, but I will say this: it's pretty unfair to the family that's left behind. I I I know my family felt that way because it was like I I sort of once I once I said okay I'm going to do this. I did it wholeheartedly, and I you know I did go home on I would take my breaks. I would take my passes and go home. I was always happy to do that but part of it was that i got to come back to this safe place where i could you know i could just focus on myself and everyone else had to deal with the my poor decisions you know trying to pay down credit card bills trying to pay down you know trying to pay the loan that i had for this practice and student loans and all this stuff so it was in a way it was it was selfish in a way to say hey look i'm going to work on my recovery but it was also it's selfish they always talked about being selfish, you have to be selfish to 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 do recovery right, which I think particularly in the beginning, it's important, but it was all it was selfish like I didn't help with a lot of the things the problems I created I did not help to clean them up till later, you know like I, I wasn't able to on on the other hand, I was no good for anyone until i until I got well, so there was that but I, I know I remember my dad being so he would try when when I'd be home or when he'd be he would visit okay, so they could visit um but what happened was they would, on Wednesdays, uh, you, would do, you would do group therapy uh, every day for the first half or more of the treatment. Some, some people did even more than that. But you'd do group therapy twice a day for an hour and a half. And um, family day was Wednesday. So that's when family members were, of people in treatment were encouraged to come down. This is the greatest thing because family day, people never wanted their family to come. And a lot of these people had ruined their family lives they'd ruined their office situation. They'd ruined all kinds of stuff. So there was no, a lot of people were pretty, pretty sight because their family Wednesday was gonna be an easy day for them because they weren't going to focus on, on them. They had no family coming. And if a family member decided to come and show up, they had to spend time helping the family member. And, and so if you had people coming on family day, you knew that you were going to get some pretty serious fire focused on you. Therapy, therapy sounds great. Group therapy is not group therapy was essentially (laughs) they would dig into some of your foibles and then everyone would just take turns sort of beating you down on it to make sure you understood. They they would break you down. It was funny because it wasn't about shame, except it was making sure you felt all of the damage that you created, especially on family days. And and I had people coming constantly. I had my mom, my dad, my sister, uh, my wife. I didn't have kids then. My wife got tired of coming, to be honest. She was, after a while, she's like, I, I just, this is just too much. You know, like, we had, we were doing pretty well by the end of, of treatment. My wife and I were definitely pointing in the same direction, doing pretty well. And so when she would come down, it was really funny. She was sort of like an amateur therapist because she'd been through it so much. She kind of could point it out to other people. Um, But I had my office team come a couple different times. Oh, that really made every, every other doc in the treatment center was really mad at me at that point because, I looked like the Golden Boy. I had my team come down and that was ugly. that was really ugly when my team in a, a safe therapy situation was explaining what it was like to work with me on a regular basis and what what I put them through and what what I asked them to cover for all this stuff it was ugly. it was ugly. it was not fun um, but I mean <laughs> immediately all the other doctors I was I was the only dentist that was in there. I, I was shockingly enough for as screwed up as most dentists are at that time I was the only dentist in the treatment center. And, um, <laughs> the other physicians who had, you know, office teams or, or anesthesiologists, God, they were a messy anesthesiologist. They didn't want to bring anyone in because they didn't want anyone to, you know, they saw that it was basically a chance for these people to speak out in a way that they'd never spoken out before about how it affected them. So family day was really powerful. And if you, if you were willing to bear it, you got a lot out of it. Like you could see what was going to be, you know, what was going to be. New and different at the office, and I do think at that point the the my team realized, yeah, he's planning on coming back. You know, he's he's not he's not going to give up dentistry. You know, and become a full time uh, recovering person or something. But it took a while. Like the first month, they had no idea what to expect, and honestly, I didn't know what to tell them either. I mean, I was still I was still in withdrawal for crying out loud. I was I didn't know anything about recovery. I didn't know anything about how it was going to be or anything like that. Um, but I will say the treatment center that I was in for all this for all the. I don't mean to sound like I'm complaining. It was just, I'm just sort of describing how it was. It was, it was a ton of humility. You had to say, okay, this is what they want me to do. I'm going to do it. And, but the other thing is, is that they appreciated the fact if you were proactive about what you were going to do differently. So they set you up before you left, you were supposed to have a very detailed written plan as to how you were, what you were going to do to make sure that you could go back to work safely And that you could go, you know, you could do so in a way that was good for everyone. And people took this task upon themselves. Some of them really half-assed it, and some of them really dug in. I really dug in. I had all kinds of plans. So, for one thing, when I was I was on a contract. Anyone who has a license in healthcare was able to be on a contract with this with this health professions recovery program. Which um, in Michigan, it's hprp.org is the website. You can even see what it's like. But basically, this is the organization that monitors, uh, licensed healthcare professionals who have problems with drugs and alcohol. And, and, and monitoring just means you're on a contract that says you're going to do this. You, you do random drug screens. You're required to see, um, an addiction specialist. I think every three months, every quarter, you're also required to, uh, go to therapy sessions, sanctioned group therapy sessions once a week through the, you know, arranged through the HPRP. Like I said, three meetings a week. Uh, Twelve-step meetings of some sort. You had to make sure you followed up with an actual physician for your health. You and all kinds of different stuff. And part of it was that I was working with the treatment center that I was in to make sure that I that my team, you know, and I could work together again. And we did this uh, one of the last weeks, probably probably a few weeks before I was to come home permanently. I did what was called an, an ESL, an extended leave. And that was me going back to work for a week. So while I was in treatment, you know, I, I went back and worked in the office for a week and, you know, they, they set it up. So it was a really easy schedule and that we could make sure that, you know, we we're all working together and all on the same page and all this. And it, <laughs> it was crazy. You know, like I was in treatment. I was literally, I was literally the guy had to, I had to learn where the, the AA and NA meetings were back home. Cause I had never gone to any of those before. I had to like, I had to have a sponsor back home. I had to, I had no like who I could fall back on, and for recovering people in my community, because I'd gone to treatment, you know, two and a half hours away from home. So I didn't have any local connections. You know, I had to make those on that week off, big time. And um, it was, it, it was, it was great. Like they, they made it so I could kind of set this up, so I was going to have some success when I was done. But um, <laughs> I just, I remember it like it was overwhelming. And and I will say that, like, you could fall into a level of comfort being in treatment because there was a routine that was comfortable for you. You knew what to expect. You had people around you that you trusted and that you liked. You know, like they were, it wasn't like all of my friends were getting out around when I did. Some of them got out earlier than I did. But a lot of the ones that, that I got really close with were were there around, they'd come in around the same time I did. So we kind of were there a lot of the a lot of the time together, like you know, four months worth. One of my best friends there was a veterinarian. He was an older guy, older, probably ten or fifteen years older than I was, Uh and he had had long term sobriety in AA uh, before he he came back. He he relapsed, and he got into trouble doing ketamine. <laughs> I, I don't know if I told this one the last time, but he was ketamine was his thing, like which is crazy because ketamine is like dissociative, like you can't react, you can't. So he would literally like he got in the ketamine i don't know cuz it must be trippy but that was sort of his thing and he of course he had ketamine at the vet's office cuz that's how you that's how you do surgery on a lot of animals so that was his thing you know so even though he had like 18 years sober in aa he went back to it with ketamine so he was sort of he was sort of our oracle because he knew how to he knew how aa worked he knew how recovery worked you know i was brand new i'd never done any of this so he was he was one of the guys that that i looked to there's another guy who was a pharmacist and uh, he was a pharmacist. I always found this hilarious. A pharmacist, you'd think, hey man, he'd get into all kinds of drugs, right? He didn't do any drugs at all. Straight up alcohol, just alcohol. And uh, he was, you know, he was one of those guys. He was a blackout drunk guy, all that stuff. And he had a really great sense of humor, but like you could tell, he had no. His home life was was ugly enough. He didn't really want to go back. Like this, this whole recovery thing, this whole treatment thing, gave him a chance to really work on himself. But he was really regretting going back a lot. I have to tell you a lot of relationships, a lot of marriages didn't survive this treatment center. Cause once you got sober and started looking at yourself, you realized that this relationship was not working for you, whether it was part of the addiction or it was part of it, So he was working through that like crazy. I was in with a, I didn't really care for him that much, but he hung out with us a lot. He was a pilot. This was always really comforting a pilot that liked to do the same kind of stuff that I did. And this was a guy who was in treatment for sure, just to cover his own ass. He was not, he didn't, he wasn't into it. he, he he always was, it was a little sketchy as to whether even not he was even clean. We did have to do random drug screens while we were in treatment the whole time we were there. So like, you kind of had to prove that you were clean. And so, but there were plenty of people that I knew closely that, that relapsed while in treatment. So I'm going to go back to, I'm going to get back to this, this surgeon that I started talking about earlier. So this guy, it was really funny. The first night that I was at the treatment center where I spent four and a half months, there was a meeting that we all, all the healthcare professionals were required to go to. It's called Caduceus, a Caduceus meeting. Any of you recovering docs know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not an AA meeting per se, but it's pretty close. And it's, um, this was a treatment center that focused on healthcare professionals. So this was a big Caduceus meeting. There's a huge, huge recovering component of healthcare professionals in Grand Rapids partly because these treatment centers have been you know there there've been these treatment centers there for a while and so this Caduceus meeting my literally my first exposure to any any kind of meetings or this treatment center was this Caduceus meeting and Caduceus is way more confrontational than an AA meeting like Basically, it's a bunch of docs looking out for each other and talking about how their recovery's been affected in the last week. And a lot of these docs never missed a caduceus meeting. Literally, they never missed it. Even even though they had 20-some years clean and sober, they never missed one of these meetings. So <laughs> my very first caduceus meeting, a nurse who had had some clean time came in, and she was actually, it's interesting, she wasn't in treatment at the time. She came in. And a bunch of her nursing friends called her out. Like you basically you'd go around and the caduceum meeting was it was a huge, like sixty people. And um you'd go around and you'd say your name, your profession, you'd, you know, say that you were an addict and you'd you'd talk about what kind of stuff you've been going on this week. And if you needed any more time than just saying everything's good, thanks, thanks for having me, you know, you'd say, I'm and I'm gonna need a little time. And so sometimes when you need a little time, it was because I went in there one time, the very first time that I spoke, I told my story uh, at a dental meeting. I, I actually drove back to to Grand Rapids to get everyone's opinion on it, if they thought it was a good idea, which was sort of funny because a lot of them didn't think it was a good idea. But and I did it, and it worked out great. But uh, this was that was like five years after I'd been out of the the program. Like I went back and got these guys' opinions, which was interesting. Um, so my first night, literally my first night in treatment, I went to this Kadushas meeting, and this woman who'd been using who, you know, had supposedly been clean for a long time, got called out by a bunch of her nurse friends, and they, they essentially put her in the hot seat and bashed her head in verbally. It was, uh, and I thought, the first, very first meeting I'd ever gone to, I thought, oh, my God, this is what I've gotten myself into. What am I going to do? You know, these caduceus meetings could get very confrontational. And they ended up breaking her down and getting her to go back into treatment because she'd relapsed and all this stuff. And I remember this guy that had literally come in like the day before I had, or the weekend before I had, he's a surgeon. He, he, uh, he stood up for, her. he, he literally knew nothing. It was his, also his first caduceus meeting. And he stood up for, her. he defended her because she was, I don't know. Cause he's sort of dumb and she was cute. And he thought he was going to get in her good grace. It was in, bunch, in front of like 60 long-term clean time, really smart guys. He, he defended her. He told her, he thinks she's doing okay or whatever. Oh my gosh, they just jumped him. And and that was that was him the whole time I was there. He would oh, if there was something that could be said that was really dumb, he was gonna say it. You knew he would. Oh, and he was a mess. He was a big he's a big cocaine guy. He was he was a financial nightmare. Um he was divorced. No, 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 no. He wasn't divorced, he was widowed. And he had spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars with his wife a few years before doing in vitro fertilization because uh, they couldn't have kids. And they finally had this, this son And the whole time. He'd been just a complete mess, just totally into cocaine. Like you, a lot of times think of the guys into cocaine or the ones that are really high functioning. And they just, they're like, you know, fast cars and, and, you know, doing this amazing surgery and then going on a Coke bender. This was the exact opposite. This guy was an absolute sad sack, but yet cocaine was his thing. He had this son that was being taken care of by his girlfriend who literally he just essentially disappointed on a, on a weekly basis. And you know that you could just tell that she was only with him because she felt horrible for his child. It was, it was a nightmare. Just, it's just a nightmare. And I lived with this guy in uh, in the treatment center for four months and he never, he never could string three sentences together that, that were like authentic. He just basically, he lived his life lying to everyone and, and he relapsed like twice. While I was in treatment, one time he realized this was great. I was his buddy to go home for it was like Easter, I think, or something like that. I was to go home with him and we were going to have Easter dinner. We, it was a one day thing. We drove early, or drove to Detroit from Grand Rapids early in the morning. We drove back in the evening. And um, I don't remember leaving him. I don't remember him being out of my sight like the whole time that I was there, but apparently he'd made some kind of contact with his drug dealer and had drugs on him while. Wow. Oh God, it's a nightmare. I didn't find out about this till after the fact. I almost killed him. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe you in any case. So like it was crazy. Being in treatment was crazy because all these people that are all like these strong personalities, it's not like these were normal folks. A lot of these folks were really high end, you know, like making tons of money, highly educated, all this stuff. And, they, and a lot of them were unlike me where they were just broken down and I was sort of broken down and ready to ready to give it up. A lot of these people didn't think there was a problem at all. And so you'd watch these people just fight it and fight it and fight it. You know, they'd come in and they'd say, well, I got, I'll do what I have to do, but they never actually owned any of it. And they just, they just said whatever we wanted to hear. And it was so frustrating to me because for me, I was like, look, I don't need to do that anymore. I'm here. I actually get a chance to like, to, so in a way, it's horrible, but I was like I was like the Captain America of recovering people cuz I hit the ground running. I, I really apparently I wanted it. I didn't even know I wanted it and I wanted it, right? But it's so rare. Typically most people don't want to give up their lifestyle or whatever. I don't know. In in a way, I locked out that way. I locked out because of my situation and that I realized that I didn't have to keep doing that. It's pretty awesome, but apparently it's also pretty rare. It just doesn't happen very often. Um so so I I finished up like I said I finished up At, uh, no, it was basically, I'd been there for almost five months. It was four and a half months. And, um, literally like a whole winter basically went by from early January to, to coming home. And, uh, I mean, I look back and it was, I kind of can't even believe I can remember because it was so long ago, but it was, for me, it was a good experience. I'm glad I had the experience. I wouldn't want to relive it my dad has said look I'm not doing it again so if, if if it happens again you're gonna have to find someone else to run that practice because I'm not doing that i certainly don't blame him for that of course I'm forever grateful that he was able to can you imagine i mean if I didn't have him what was I going to do I, I didn't you know there's not a lot of programs where people could come in and just run your program and the other thing is when you're in treatment the last thing you want to do is admit to everyone where you are it's it's a mess you know it's 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 not a solution that we have set up you know because because the shame keeps us from talking about it That's one of the reasons I do talk about it because I figure I know there's plenty of people that are struggling with this stuff and they think that they think that they're so important that they can't be away. They can't, they can't do this. Their practice will be done. People need them and and that they don't have a problem. And what I'm saying is that, um, you can get help. You can get better. Uh, it's not easy and you have to decide you're going to do it and you have to have a ton of humility and you have to follow directions and you have to decide you're not the most important person. You don't get to make all the calls. And for a lot of people in our profession, in our circles, they don't do that very well. Uh, but it works. And I mean, I have, no, I have no regret on that end. There's so much that I learned from doing this, not the least of which is that uh, everyone has emotions, or pretty much almost everyone has emotions unless you're a complete sociopath. Uh, a lot of people don't even understand that they have emotions. A lot of people don't understand that much of... Much of their reaction and much of the way they look at life is because their emotional growth is kind of stunted and they they don't allow themselves to feel their emotions. Um, And having four months to work on myself and learn a little bit about what it's like to be a grown up was very valuable for me. So in some ways, I wish that other people could do that. But, uh, you know, I don't know that many people would want to give up the kind of autonomy that I, I had to give up to go to treatment like that. So listen, if, if this has been valuable to you again, I would love to hear uh, hear from you either on the Alameda experience Facebook page, which if you are not a member, feel free to go look it up on Facebook. The Alameda experience. There is a password that I require for you to get in. It's it's premier. And I will get you in as long as you give me the password uh, or you can email me. I'm just going to give you a, a Alan Alan at meadfamilydental.com. Uh, or Alan at thealumexperience.com. Either one. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear if you got any value out of this. I, there's more I can talk about. Interestingly, there's a whole the whole period of time where I was transitioning from treatment back into being a dentist was was a trip. That's probably where I would go next. If there's if people are finding this interesting, I would love to hear about it. And uh, I hope you guys had a wonderful holiday season. Uh, I hope you're looking forward to the new year. And if you get a chance, uh, shoot, it's, it's basically a month until the Voices of Dentistry meeting, which is in Scottsdale, Arizona. Go check it out at VoicesofDentistry.com. Uh, sign up. I think, the, I think the room block is still open. There might be a few rooms left. We'd love to see you there. It's going to be a blast. All your favorite dental podcasters are going to be there. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So thank you very much for listening. And uh, keep in touch, and we'll talk to you again soon.